everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go! Welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Jodie Lee Trembath, your familiar stranger today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. So today I'm bringing you an interview with Deborah Heath, who is a leading anthropologist of wine. We recorded this interview at the 4S conference in August 2018, and I should probably just mention that that's on Gadigal land, not on Ngambri and Ngannawal land. When we recorded this interview, we sat down, we had a good chat about wine over a glass of wine, and that was probably the best possible way to record an interview, and I recommend everybody doing it that way in the future. Deborah Heath is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Lewis and Clark in Portland, Oregon, and she's had quite a diverse academic career, ranging from the anthropology of science, medicine and technology, to the anthropology of food and drink, to feminist studies. She has worked on collaborative projects aimed at mapping genetic knowledge, and she's also researched women's dance and fashion in Senegal, and she is obviously quite the connoisseur of wine. So at the 4S conference, Deborah joined with Mike Benny, who's the founder of the sustainably focused wine fair, Rootstock, and also co-owner of PNV Wine and Liquor Merchants. Both of those are in Sydney. Um, and she created a workshop that talked about natural wine worlds and the complex relationships that take place around grapevines with grapevines and between grapevines. So we unpack the meaning behind wine by exploring the differences between commercial winemaking and natural winemaking. We look at how using chemicals like the ones that Monsanto create on grapevines actually creates these post-apocalyptic worlds in which the communications all go down between the vines. We talk about companion species. They're not just your pets. Sometimes they are bringing you wine, which is the best kind of pet. And we talk about living with the trouble. That's kind of the mantra of science and technology studies, particularly in regards to anthropology, being able to move forward, knowing that that complication is there and pushing through anyway. So here it is, my conversation with Deborah Heath at the 4S conference. So maybe you could start by telling us what is natural wine? Isn't all wine natural? I mean, it's grapes. So... Wine doesn't exist in nature. That's um, true. Grapes don't turn themselves into wine without some sort of collaborative relationship with people who make wine. The loose umbrella of so-called natural wine is variously used to refer to wines that are manipulated less, hmm. wines that don't have chemical inputs in the vineyard, which have become routine, especially since World War II, and that minimize the interventions in the wine cellar. And it's the loose network of people around the world who are thinking about making low intervention wine has been one of the foci of my 
researchers and anthropologists for a number of years now. You say that there's less chemicals. What kind of chemicals go into wine when it's not natural? It's actually pretty incredible. Oh, yeah? And in the cellar, there's a really long list of, of additives. Some of them wouldn't strike you as out of the ordinary, perhaps, but labeling rules typically don't require winemakers to tell us what they've added. So it's pretty common practice, for instance, to do what's called capitalization, which means to add sugar, which boosts alcohol. It's fairly common practice to add acid, but a natural winemaker wouldn't do either of those things. It's standard practice, really, to use sulfur dioxide in order to stabilize wine. It's both an antimicrobial and an antioxidant. It's used in pretty high quantities in conventional winemaking. And people who are participating in this conversation will say that adding too much, or some of them will say adding any sulfur dioxide, mutes the aromatic properties of the wine and ask that we not do that. Yeah. So if it's, if it's stabilizing it, then does that imply that the wine lasts longer, that it's more that consistent it's better suited for travel, right. for instance? Yeah. Many producers who are trying to, to minimize how much their wine is messed with will add um, a bit of SO2 at time of bottling. SO2 um, is the sulfur dioxide. Sulfur dioxide, yeah. right. And commercial producers will add a ton of it at the time that grapes are brought in for harvest. And one of the things that allows them to do is not be so careful about the condition of the grapes when they bring them in. They don't have to harvest them carefully. So a lot of natural producers are returning to the practices of artisan winemaking, of hand harvesting, for instance, and just making sure that the grapes that end up in the fermentation vessels are intact so that there's not a way for undesirable microbes to make their way in. I want to ask you about the title of your presentation and also just for the purposes of listeners can I just say that I drank a lot of wine at Deborah's presentation the other night and I didn't have a hangover and to the extent that I'm now having another glass of this delicious wine while we are recording this episode. The title of the workshop that Jody joined me for was Natty Wine and Its Companion Species. Yeah which I love and so you you mentioned undesirable microbes are they some of the companion species or are they the bad guys? Well, you know, not all companions are good companions, right? Or not all companions are, necess are desirable in all circumstances. So there's a lot that's going on in fermentation. And as an anthropologist who also works in STS, Science and Technology Studies, I've been part of this conversation that we now refer to as multi-species ethnography. And thinking about the other agents that collaborate in the growing of grapes in the vineyard and the fermentation process that delivers us with our delicious wine. There are opportunities to think about lots of different worlds that are in play in making this happen. So in the vineyard, I've become enamored with the zone around the the root of the grapevine, which is called the rhizosphere. Oh. And the rhizosphere is what Donna Haraway and others have called a contact zone. 
where the plant and its root meet the fungi and bacteria that live in the soil that create these symbiotic relationships that give the grapevine access to water and nutrients. So the mycorrhizal fungi send out their filaments into the pores of the soil, and they're much finer than even the finest of root hairs. And they also have this symbiotic relationship with the root where they are fed by the root of the plant. They're fed carbohydrates. and they, So there's a nutrient exchange that's going on. And the winemaker's interest in what the French call terroir, terroir, which anthropologist Amy Trubeck calls the taste of place, is facilitated by these multi-species relationships. Mm. So if someone's practicing conventional viticulture or what came to be conventional after World War II, and using chemical herbicides. Like Roundup, for example. Like, like glyphosate, the, the, the main agent in Roundup, yeah. which is routinely used in vineyards and fields and gardens that Monsanto says is perfectly safe, but plenty of data suggests otherwise. It's not safe to these soil microflora. It kills them. And that cuts off this communication network between minerals and other soil attributes in the plant itself. So right. Strike number one. Yeah. So it sounds almost like, I don't know, some kind of sci-fi fiction story, doesn't it? That you've got these underground tunnels that are communicating with each other across the different vines. And I mean, you can imagine that we'd end up with a post-apocalyptic world if you killed off all of the communication systems between regions. Yeah, it sounds sort of grim, doesn't it? A little bit. And the travels that I've done to wine regions in different parts of the world have shown me these stark contrasts. You'll see side-by-side vineyards that are managed organically and biodynamically, and those that are managed conventionally. The ones that are managed conventionally have been sprayed with herbicides like Roundup between the the rows of the vines, and they're brown. They look like a moonscape. And next door is a thriving, teeming cornucopia of plants that are growing between the vines. And many people plant particular cover crops now that can serve to fix nitrogen, to to actually stabilize access atmospheric nitrogen and, and make it accessible to the plants. So instead of there being a community of plants and microflora working in concert with one another, you've got this kind of disrupted circuit of communication. So other than the the plants and the fungi, the... The, the mycorrhizal fungi? The, yes, the mycorrhizal... Arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, to be exact. Uh, I'm going to keep getting you to repeat those when necessary. Uh, so... Those things that we would think of as living but not sentient. Um, oh, oh, Deborah just oh. pulled a face. Not maybe <laughs> sentient. Are they sentient? Well, you know, there's a very interesting literature that's not regarded as strictly mainstream in academic science, but that talks about plant communication and uses terms like neurobiology to discuss something that some people refer to as plant intelligence. So are we talking literally like the plants are plotting? Wow, haha, that was a good (laughs) pun. Um, The 
<laughs> the, 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 the plants are thinking? Is that like the latest thinking about plants? Well, let's say there's a broader conversation that considers the ways in which these more than human others behave in an observably adaptable way to their environments. The conversation in STS linked to Bruno Latour and his followers that considers the notion of non-human agency is relevant here. The notion of affordances is one way of talking about this. Um, Can you talk us through that idea of affordances? Sure. So the way that the mycorrhizal fungi help feed the grapevine. Right. So they're affording it. Uh, they're affording well, it access life. to nutrients. That's yeah. right. They're affording it a, a more robust life, let's say. So I guess my question was going to be, other than the plants, are there other companion species that you're you're thinking about? Because I guess normally when we think of companion species, we're kind of thinking about pets and the, the animals or, I don't know, pet rocks, Wilson, whatever, that we choose to spend our time with. So what are the critters that vines choose to spend their time with? Vines are sedentary rather than pastoral. Right? Me too. <laughs> Cecil. They get put in one place and then they mostly stay there. But in their relations with those who have relations of care with them, in a fully self-sustaining vineyard environment, there will be lots of other critters involved. If you have animals like sheep, chickens, cattle, horses that um, graze on the property and produce manure, and that manure can then be composted, you've got their participation in this nutrient soil that also then contributes to the microflora in the soil. And one of the practices that is used in organic and biodynamic agriculture and viticulture is composting. Composting is described by those who do it as magical. I mean, it produces all of this heat and the, the level of microbial activity that's going on in the compost as it decomposes the, the organic matter from the manure, and foodstuffs and other things that might be added. Um, that that then will be distributed among the vines and contribute to the vitality of these soil microbes that are active in helping to feed the vines. And in, in the soil itself, as well as the fungi and, and certain soil bacteria, um, there are also microfauna, including earthworms, which do an incredible job um, turning rocks into soil. Literally turning rocks into soil. Yeah, not directly, but they, they participate in this process that facilitates this transformation from inorganic to organic. Hmm. And you see many more of them in soil that's not been disrupted by the, the mortal intervention of these, these agricultural chemicals. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious that doing things more naturally is going to get better results both for the earth and for the wine. But given that wine is often seen as a recreational uh, device, technology, um, to make ourselves happier, but possibly not always seen as doing that in a very healthy way, what's the value of studying this? Why as an anthropologist 
should we be looking at wine? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't consider it a mandate that all anthropologists do this. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they all do in some <laughs> way, though. <laughs> but, you know, um, really, if you, if you look back at the long history of anthropology, haven't we long been interested in the way that human practices mediate between nature and culture? So that's at the heart of the notion of terroir. So terroir is about nature culture, is about natural cultural relations. And in the broader conversations about what some call the Anthropocene and the ways in which human extractive practices have created deleterious environmental conditions, this is one of those canaries in the the mine shaft, right? Mm. Other sorts of ingestibles have required labeling. Um, ingestibles, food. Things that we eat. Right, yeah. And things that we eat and drink. It's not required in North America, and I'm not sure about Australian society. It's not required that we drink wine. Oh, that's beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but because grapevines are perennials, an analogous practice would be cultivation of orchards, fruit trees. There's a long-term investment in particular plants in particular places. So it's different from growing lettuce or carrots that, that might be rotated with something else from one year to the next. And conversations in the European Union around the taste of place have been incorporated into the regulatory systems of things like the AOC in France or the DOC in Italy or Spain. Which are um, the, the regulatory the, bodies for wine, for, right? for For wine, and have, have been extended in some cases to, to other foods grown in particular places. So there are infrastructures that allow or encourage us to talk about the relationships that people have with particular regions and the things that are grown there. And this is one of the entry points for us to participate in those important conversations. about the taste of place yeah. we had brad weiss on the the show Wonderful. yeah Wonderful. a while yeah. ago and we were talking a little bit about that can yeah. you talk me through a little bit more about how a place can have a taste what what even is taste excellent question and not not one with an easy answer right i mean you know we can talk about the physiology of taste and the sensory qualities that, that let us distinguish one eating experience from another there are certainly cultural and historical aspects involved so we learn to think of some things as edible and other things as inedible some things as tasty and others as less tasty people in the wine world who have professional training the sommeliers, people who've been certified by the, the program that produces people with a master's of wine, they've learned to cite Bourdieu, right? A level of distinction in terms of being able to tell one thing from another. But, you know, finally, each of us can decide what tastes good to us. And then again, we're in the crosshairs of marketing, so in the wine world, the U.S. wine writer Robert Parker had a huge influence on the sensory profile of wines that have been deemed quality. So 
He's the one who created the numerical scoring system that you'll see on tags in grocery stores. This wine got a 97. And also, he's someone who has preferred red wines with a big, bold profile. That, in combination with the scoring system, in terms of the commodification of wine and its global distribution, has influenced, has altered the way that winemakers around the world have chosen to produce their wine one way rather than another. So the big, bold red has had a a kind of hegemonic position for quite a while, through the 1990s up to the present. And folks involved in this minimal intervention wine movement tend not to reproduce that flavor profile. So they're also part of a kind of resistance to a certain way of shaping consumer tastes, Hmm. a kind of a pushback. Those big, bold reds have tended to be higher alcohol as well. So that process of adding sugar, capitalization is part of that. Also in terms of climate change, warmer harvests produce riper grapes, which have more sugar, which produce higher alcohol. And it's become the case that folks who are looking for a different sort of experience in how they produce their own wines or in what they buy are looking for regions that are cooler or producing wines at higher altitudes or harvesting earlier rather than later in order to seek a different sort of taste experience. So in terms of educating the public about different types of taste then. So Deborah and I had a conversation the other night where I said, normally I only drink red wine, but all of the wines here tonight have been white wines and I've adored every single one of them, which makes no sense to me. And Deborah said to me, well, the kinds of white wines that you've been drinking are highly commercialized and not very refined. Um, Highly manipulated. And that when you're drinking the kind of white wine that hasn't been through that highly chemicalized process, that you're actually going to be getting a lot more flavor and a lot less sourness. In terms of education, a lot of people have that experience, right? That they they think they only want to drink red wines. Right. Right. If wine hasn't been turned into a standardized beverage, there's room for variation. Mm. There's appreciation for variation. That has something to do with the taste of place. There's different vintages, if not manipulated to achieve a standard outcome, will be distinctive. You're tasting 2009 Mm. versus... 2016, and that tells you something about how warm it was that year, or or things that are more complex than that. So when did rains come? If they did, and were there any disasters? Was there a hot spell followed by a, a little rainy spell? And all of those things have make specific interventions in what Goethe called the metamorphosis of plants. Right. And you were talking also in your seminar about the Georgian grapevines. Yeah. That was incredible. One of the places that I visited is the Republic of Georgia, sometimes referred to as the cradle of wine. So it's on the Black Sea. They've been making wine continuously for 8,000 years. Mind-blowing. Right. They've currently identified more than 500 varieties of grapevine that are mostly not heard of in the globalized wine world. 
they ferment and age the wines in these large clay vessels that are older than Greek amphorae. They're called quevri, and they're quite delicious. Again, a range of flavors that palates that have only had standardized commercial wines wouldn't have had an opportunity to taste. Mm. So most of the wines that we are used to seeing on the shelves come from a really short list of what are referred to, and this is sociologically interesting, noble grapes, hmm. right? And uh, the, the marginalized grapes are legions and legions that are left off a list that usually numbers about 18, 18 grapes, right? The ones that are most commonly commercialized and distributed. So in, in this world of folks who are looking back in order to look forward to other possible futures, there's a renewed appreciation for grapes that are indigenous to particular places that have been eclipsed by the noble grapes. There are lots and lots of tales that are horror stories for folks who like to court this kind of biodiversity of places. Portugal is one example. The, the whole Iberian Peninsula was south of the front end of the glaciers in the last big ice age and they constitute what biologists call a refugia. They're a, a biological refuge or refugia where many, many more varieties of grapevines survived than north of that line. And so in modern day Spain and Portugal, you can still find lots and lots of different kinds of, of grapes, varieties of grapes, if you choose to, to take a look. And there, there are more producers who are doing their best to bring these old indigenous grapes back into production. Hmm. Do we have any sense of how many great, well, wine varieties of grape exist? There are different ways of counting it in terms of what's commercialized or not, but they've identified um, over 2,000 and there may well be more. So you haven't always looked at wine. You've, True. you've also done quite a lot of other things. Well, you know, why just do one thing, right? <laughs> my, uh, my dissertation research was actually in West Africa in Senegal where I did work on, on political culture, political oratory, women's dance and fashion, among other things. And then I later moved into the beginning of my connection with STS. I got interested in genetics at the beginning of the Human Genome Project and was able to get some of the funding that became available for people in fields like anthropology and philosophy and law to look at the ethical, legal, and social implications of genetic research. We had a project called Mapping Genetic Knowledge and Anthropological Approach, looking at the emerging worlds, linking people with three different families of genetic conditions with clinical practitioners and others who shape their worlds and vice versa. Okay. And we're really interested in the way in which lay health activists produce biomedical knowledge and don't just consume or submit to it. So you were studying three families of genetic conditions. And what were those three families? Marfan syndrome which is people who are taller than average with some high risks for cardiovascular and skeletal conditions. And people with heritable dwarfism, of which there are a couple of hundred forms. 
and people with a family of pretty devastating blistering skin diseases called EB, which is short for epidermolysis bullosa. So why do we call those families? Well, excellent question. There are different manifestations of conditions that have taxonomically and biomedically been grouped together as so-called disease genes came to be identified. Those were sometimes used to group diseases together and sometimes to distinguish them within families. All three of those are what are called heritable connective tissue disorders, and they all affect human morphology. What does that mean? The, the you know, how, how people are shaped. Oh. So taller or shorter or less corporeally intact than the average way of human being. Oh, okay. Can we pause there to unpack what that is? Because, I mean, <laughs> even looking across the average of each country or each, uh, I know that my Scandinavian friends all tower over me, for example, But and I'm short and everybody towers over me. But, I mean, from that perspective, like, is there an average for humans that we can look at and feel that it's a meaningful statistic? Well, the way that a geneticist would approach this within any particular population group. Folks who have these genetic anomalies will vary from the norm within that group. Yes. So in, in each of these cases, the molecules that are involved bring about many different changes. And so one of the things that was of interest to us in the project is that in terms of medical treatment or care, Lots of different specialties need to be involved, so people in orthopedics as well as cardiology, et cetera, et cetera, all need to be brought into the, the conversation. And this is one of the reasons that the networks that health activists form to support one another have come to be an important source of knowledge because they know more collectively than any given medical specialist would. So right. as a fabulous friend, interlocutor woman who was a nurse who was affected with Marfan syndrome, also a researcher, unfortunately, um, passed away a few years ago. But she would tell her patients, if you can't change your doctor, change doctors. I mean, there's incredible empowerment through knowledge sharing and direct action among the lay advocates. Who constitutes that group of lay advocates? They started them themselves. But who are they? In the United States, the advocacy organization for people with heritable dwarfism is called, um, this was their naming, the Little People of America. They were started by dwarves in Hollywood who had been typecast in all sorts of stereotypical ways and had suffered in terms of disadvantageous labor practices as well as the stigma that they suffered. They became a really powerful force and pulled together this organization and established a medical board and set strict limits that required medical researchers to get clearance from them before they could proceed with research on anyone with their conditions. It's impressive. Yeah. So what does it mean to map genetic knowledge in the sense that you're referring to with these health advocates? Well, it really, um, Donna Haraway's felicitous phrase, situated knowledges, is important here. So there are many different perspectives on what a condition like 
heritable dwarfism or Marfan syndrome means? It's understood differently by physicians than it is by researchers. And it's understood differently by people who live with the condition in their families than it is people in clinical milieus or laboratory settings. Um, what I'll say is that working with the physicians and scientists who developed relationships with the, the lay advocates over the years. Those people in those particular networks were and are quite open to learning from the people living with the conditions. So I came to have a lot of respect for them. I remember early on being corrected by, by one geneticist when I referred to someone as a patient, and he said, no, people are only patients when they're in the middle of an appointment in a clinic. Would patients agree with that? I think there are many who would. I'm not a patient, you know. I'm, I'm a person living a whole life, and sometimes I seek care for my condition. And I want that to be respectful and well-informed, and if I need to help make that happen, I have support to do so. So, in fact, it was, it was a way of empowering them to be whole people. That's right. Yeah. We're just coming towards the end. So for my my final question, given the different types of research that you've done, you've done human-centric research and you've done research where the humans are almost peripheral to the, the anthropological relationships going on in the... I probably wouldn't go quite that far. Our, no? In our conversation, they've, they've, they've been off to the side, but okay. complete your thought there. Well, I guess I guess my question is, does the practice of anthropology change across the different types of anthropology that you're doing? And if so, how? That's the, the $64,000 question. <laughs> we all strive to, as Donna Haraway says, live with the trouble, live with the contradictions of the work that we do that can and has been invasive, that has many times privileged our relative power vis-a-vis -vis those we, we work with. I think the expansion of our perspective to think about the myriad of interlocutors that are included across the human plus more than human spectrum gives us more opportunities to practice openness and practice a kind of awareness to relations between organisms and their environments. So on a practical level, is that just something that you have in mind that you're thinking about when you are in the field or is it does it actually change what you do in the field? Backing away from discourses and practices of mastery and control puts us in a, a different sort of gestalt, I think that opens us up to a more fine-tuned awareness of environmental degradation and also opens up our imaginations to and our aspirations to try to map out other possible worlds. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So that was it, me and Deborah Heath. 
Today's episode was produced by me, Jodie Lee Trembath, with help from the other familiar strangers, Julia Brown and Simon Theobald, and our executive producers, Ian Pollock, Matthew Fung, and Deanna Caddo. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And since it's coming to the end of the year, do not forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and your dislikes. It helps people find the show and it helps us make the show better. You can find the show notes for this episode, including a list of all the books and the papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at www.thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or you have anything to say to us at The Familiar Strange, email us at submissions at The Familiar Strange, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook or Instagram. Our music's by Pete Dabrow, and special thanks today to Mike Benny, Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. The Familiar Strange will be taking a break over the Christmas period to recharge and reflect on the past year so that we can bring you some great new content in the new year. So we'll be back in January. Keep an eye out. Until then, though, have a great festive season and keep talking strange. <laughs>